Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Over the last few episodes, we've examined ideas of legacy in the past leading up to 1840. For this episode, I'd like to get into the thick of things and focus in on party politics in 1840. A few basics for those who may be unfamiliar with the period. As it has been for most of American history, there were two parties at the time. One is the long-running Democratic Party. The other was the Whig Party. Though those names are applied for simplicity's sake today, there were variations at the time. The Democrats were sometimes referred to as the Party of Jackson, referring to its rallying figure, Andrew Jackson, as well as the Administration Party, the Republican Party, and I just saw a reference to a Van Jack pro-administration newspaper, an amalgamation of Jackson and Martin Van Buren's names. Likewise, the Whigs were also known as the Whig Republicans, and sometimes just the Republicans, the ones opposed to those other Republicans. When one adds in the slurs used against the parties by their opposition, the list grows even longer. They weren't as much of sticklers for details as folks can be nowadays, but they certainly had more solidified of an identity and organizational structure than the first party system's Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans, for lack of a better term, who could never even settle on just one name. The Democrats in 1840 were in name led by Martin Van Buren, but the spirit of the party was with Andrew Jackson. Jackson had pulled together his supporters to win the White House in 1828 and, after serving two terms, handed over the reins to his chosen successor, Van Buren. However, Van Buren, soon after taking office, was forced to face the Panic of 1837, which was an international economic downturn. It is still being debated amongst scholars as to how much effect, if any, Jackson's economic policies had on causing the panic, but suffice it to say, A continuation of Jackson's policies did not seem to be the cure to the nation's financial ailment. The more Van Buren chafed against Jacksonian principles in his attempts to address the nation's economic woes, the more the party split between those supporting Van Buren and those who felt that party ideology should be retained without any alteration. Thus, the party was quite fractured going into the 1840 election. The opposition party, the Whigs, though stronger than they had ever been, was also ideologically fractured. The Whigs were a confederation of various smaller political parties, including the National Republicans and the Anti-Masons, along with people like John Tyler, Hugh L. White, and even at one point John C. Calhoun, who were personally opposed to Andrew Jackson, though not necessarily differing in ideology from the Democrats. The party had initially come together following the 1832 election, but rather than running one candidate nationally in the next election, ran various sectional candidates. Daniel Webster was the candidate from the Northeast, Hugh Lawson White was the candidate from the South, and William Henry Harrison was the candidate from the Midwest. The thought, or at least as much as went into it by the scattered factions of the Whig Party, was to take enough electoral votes from Van Buren so that the election would be thrown into the House of Representatives, as it was in 1824, and then a candidate would be chosen from whoever remained in the top three vote-getters put before the House. The plan failed, and Van Buren achieved enough electoral votes to win. 
However, for the first and to date only time, the vice presidential election had to go to the Senate to decide, as Virginia's electors refused to vote for Van Buren's running mate, Richard Mentor Johnson. Johnson was ultimately elected by the Senate. The Whigs had seen the folly of their ways as 1840 approached, and were committed to rallying around one candidate. Who that would be, though, remained to be seen. Daniel Webster attempted to rally support, but his candidacy floundered, and he ultimately sent a letter while en route to Europe asking for his name to be removed from consideration. The other major national leader of the Whig Party was Henry Clay of Kentucky. Clay had been a force in American politics for decades, having first risen to prominence by becoming Speaker of the House on his first day in the House of Representatives, the first and to date only person to have ever done so. However, despite his lengthy record and considerable support network, he was also tarnished with the label of Hasram. He had run unsuccessfully for president in 1824 and 1832, with Clay coming in fourth place in the first election, then losing to Andrew Jackson by nearly 200,000 votes in the second election. More so than even the factor of his past unelectability, as Clay biographer and noted historian Robert Remini noted in his description of Clay, quote, He did not annoy his political opponents so much as he infuriated them. His thrusts could be deadly, but were always exquisitely executed, and he never failed to comment on the discomfort he had invoked, usually by denying any intentional malice. Clay made enemies just as easily as he made friends, and during his long tenure in politics, he had made plenty of enemies who sought to keep him from the halls of executive power. It should be noted that there was one more party active in 1840. The Liberty Party was organized on April 1, 1840, by abolitionists from six states, and they ran James G. Burney of New York for president and Thomas Earl of Pennsylvania for vice president that year. However, Burney was not on the ballot in 14 states, the slaveholding states of the Union, and only received 7,069 votes in the election. While not wanting to get too off-topic from our focus on politics in 1840, I do mention this not just as a fact of trivia, but also as marking a shift in the political landscape. Abolitionism as a movement had developed throughout the 1830s, but had been criticized in both the North and the South as threatening the unity of the nation, a dangerous agitation. Some even attacked abolitionists as trying to divert attention from poor working conditions for laborers in the North. During this time, abolitionism was not viewed as synonymous with the North, but the organization of the Liberty Party solely by individuals from the North and the lack of ballot access for Bernie in the South indicates that what had previously been a social discussion and dispute was coming into the political realm. This was the first but would not be the last political party to take up abolitionism as a core principle. As we're all aware, the slavery question grows to dominate American politics from this point forward until it erupts in the Civil War. For a candidate who only got just over 7,000 votes, Bernie's run for the presidency is arguably one of the most important in early American history. Politics were also changing in terms of how to appeal for votes. Gradually, 
first with the Jeffersonian Republicans, then with the Jacksonian Democrats. There were successful mass appeals to expand the right to vote. However, with this expansion, it was beginning to be understood that new means of approaching the voters would be required for candidates to be successful in the future. Harrison in 1836 became the first presidential candidate to actively campaign, though it should be noted that he tried to focus his speeches on non-political topics during this campaign. For more information on the 1836 election in general, I recommend Richard P. McCormick's article, Was There a Whig Strategy in 1836? Another key component of modern political organization was well in place by this time, the National Convention of the Party. The tradition began with Jackson as he and his supporters organized the first national nominating convention in Baltimore, Maryland in May 1832. Though not adopted by the Whigs until two election cycles later, the Whigs opted to have two conventions in the lead up to 1840. The actual nominating convention occurred in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in December 1839, while a second convention, the Whig Young Men's Convention, took place in May 1840. Miraculously enough, in the same city and at the same time as the Democratic National Convention of that year. The Whigs even organized a parade through the streets of Baltimore so that the Democrats who had come to renominate Van Buren would know that they were there. Whigs would use campaign songs, slogans, campaign biographies, and pamphlets, ribbons, and more tools to get the word and the vote out for Harrison in 1840. Democrats would ridicule Whigs for resorting to, quote, vulgar tactics to get votes. But both parties agreed that they would use the power of the press to its fullest extent to win. As mentioned in the episode on John Tyler in Virginia, newspaper editors played a large role in leading the two major parties in 1840. It is easy to understand why, then, the number of newspapers in the nation increased from 906 to 1,577 in the past decade. A growth rate of nearly 75% and a far cry from the 92 papers that the new nation had 50 years prior at the start of the constitutional government. Though having acted in the past as public forums to discuss the issues of the day for the new republic, by the Jackson era, newspapers had become for the most part the tools of the party to spin and sell their respective messages to the public. More voters in the growing nation necessitated more media outlets to reach urban and rural voters alike. On the Whig side, Thurlow Weed, editor of the Albany Evening Journal in New York, was accused of being the mastermind behind Harrison's nomination at the Whig Convention in Harrisburg. He was already seen as being the Whig boss of New York State, having successfully managed the campaign of William Seward as governor. However, he was gradually expanding his control to a national level, receiving regular reports from Representatives Francis Granger and Millard Fillmore on news in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, his protege, Horace Greeley, had just founded the Log Cabin in May 1840, a paper which would serve as an electioneering tool for the Whig ticket and, after the election, became the New York Tribune. Though described by one historian as, quote, in the Jacksonian era at least, primarily a journalist, Greeley's influence in the political realm was growing, and he would prove to be a prominent figure in the United States through the Civil War and after. 
On the Democratic side, Thomas Ritchie of Virginia was discussed in the Virginia episode, so I won't say much about him here. The American editor with arguably the widest reach at this point in history was Francis Preston Blair of the Washington Globe. Blair had been a key member of Andrew Jackson's Kitchen Cabinet, an unofficial group of advisors during his presidency, and even into the Van Buren administration was in close contact with the general on plotting Democratic media strategy. However, Blair struggled to adjust to and position himself with the Van Buren administration, though he continued to support the administration's policies. Originally from Virginia before moving west, Blair had made his way in journalism, first in Kentucky, then in being named editor of the Globe, due to another key editor in Democratic circles, and more of an insider in the Van Buren administration, Amos Kendall. Kendall was born in Massachusetts, but like many of his contemporaries, headed west to make his career. He became editor of the Argus of Western America in Frankfort, Kentucky, before settling in Washington, D.C. as a key member of Jackson's Kitchen Cabinet. Officially, his position in the government was fourth auditor of the Treasury Department, but Jackson would often consult directly with Kendall on a wide range of issues. When the position became available, Jackson appointed Kendall as Postmaster General, a position of great importance in the antebellum republic due to the department being a key source of patronage for political supporters. Van Buren would come to rely on Kendall as a valued advisor, and Kendall would only leave the administration in 1840 in order for Kendall to resume a role as editor with the Extra Globe, a pro-administration newspaper slash propaganda piece. It was well understood as the election neared that Van Buren would need one of his most trusted hands leading the campaign machine away from potential failure. But by that point, it was much too late to undo the damage. We'll discuss Kendall more in detail in the next episode. But before we part ways, I did want to mention one other prominent editor of the time. Professional politicians weren't the only ones who changed parties in the Jacksonian era. Duff Green, a close associate of John C. Calhoun, was the editor of the United States Telegraph, based in Washington, D.C. The Telegraph was originally intended to be the party newspaper of the Jacksonian Democrats upon Green's assuming control of it in 1827. But before long, infighting led to Blair's being brought in and the Globe established as the Jackson paper. Green, still tied to Calhoun, fell out with Jackson and his supporters and by 1833 had tied himself to Henry Clay's National Republicans, and by 1840 was on Harrison's Whig bandwagon. Though his influence had diminished, Green in January 1841 was requesting a meeting to seek a position as U.S. Minister to Texas in the incoming administration. Politics in 1840 were a you-scratch-my-back affair, as we'll learn more about in our next episode, which I'm calling To the Victor Go the Spoils the antebellum spoil system. Until then, thank you for listening. As always, please send questions, feedback, and any thoughts you might have to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. For sources used in this episode and supplementary materials, please feel free to visit the blog for the podcast, available at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, Blueberry without the ease.com. If you're not listening to the podcast from here already, the Harrison Podcast is on iTunes. 
If you like the show and would like to share your two thumbs up so that more folks will know about us, please take a moment to review the podcast on iTunes. You don't have to write anything. Just giving the star rating will help it to show up higher in the list. Thanks again, and take care.